Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message with our lead pastor, Zach Maddox. Well, good morning again. The heart posture today, I hope it really is one of God, more of you, less of us. Um, if you're new to Connection Point, I actually greeted a couple of folks that are, are new today. And uh, if you are, we, we typically have services that go to about 11.15. Today, I'll just tell you up front, we're going to go a little bit longer today. Uh, mostly because today, number one, we want to give liberty in our time of singing for the Lord to have his way. And uh, that our hearts are right before him as we get into God's word. But secondarily, I, I, today I'm wrapping up what's been a year-long message, or a series. So I don't know about you, but when you got one Sunday to wrap it all up, what we covered for a year, that's a lot, right? <laughs> but I want to do that today. So just one opportunity for that. So the goal of this, this year-long Better Together series has been to inform us on what it means to live in the kingdom of God, what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. So that's really what we've been going after. And it takes a lot of time to really uncover what does that look like. So when Shelly and I came to Connection Point almost six years ago, there was three things that the Lord had placed on our hearts in regarding this congregation. So those three things were Jesus, community, and resilience. Those three things. And so early on, what we did is we did a message on life together, what it means to live well in community. So we covered that. And then what came up from this understanding is this understanding that we may make a decision to follow Jesus alone, but we grow in Jesus together. That we need the church. We need one another. I think if you are uncertain about that, you might be more certain after the year we had last year, right? We need community. We need each other in the body of Christ. So we did this series on life together. So we covered community. And then later that year, we did a three-year series on Luke, all about Jesus, about his coming, his teachings, his life message, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. And in between those two series, Life Together and Luke Jesus in Action, uh, I had actually planned on doing a series on bulletproof. How do we help the church have resilience in the world in which we live? And, and for whatever reason, I just didn't have a release to, to share it at that time. And, and so we went into a series on my book, The Resistance, The Church and Its Mission. Uh, it's all about what Jesus expects of his church because this is Jesus' church, in case you don't know. This is Jesus' church. It's not our church, it's his. And so we want to make sure that we're living up to his standards. So we did that series. And, and then we got into uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, 42 to 47. So after we finished Luke three years and we got into Acts and we stopped where we were talking about the early church, the community, uh, and how they gathered and shared Jesus and reached their neighbors. And, and then after we got to that point, we were going to continue on and then COVID hit. And then all of a sudden it became really, really important to teach on resilience, right? So that's where we wound up. So we did community life together. We did Jesus. And, and then we got into some shorter series on fearless and live whole. But then really what we were pointing to is this year-long series we've been in on better together with the understanding that the way we get through a crisis is together. The way we reach the world is together. Life together. So it's interesting, and in the focus on resilience, it really actually comes down to Jesus and community. 
So we really kind of dealt with it within those two series, but at the same time, we wanted to be more intentional on what it really means to live up to our kingdom values as citizens of heaven. And so Better Together has been that. And in this series, we've talked about justice issues like racism, poverty, refugees, and abortion. We've talked about relational issues regarding men, women, marriage, sexuality, and singleness. We've talked about spiritual disciplines like prayer, fasting, singing, rest, and community. We've talked about politics, death, and universalism. And we've had this ongoing mantra. We have a king. We live in a kingdom. God's word is our guide, and we have a mission to fulfill. That's about as simple a statement as I can give you on what it means to live in the kingdom. And, and today, as we wrap it all up, here's my hope. My hope is that you walk out of here with a solid understanding of why it's absolutely vital that you make Jesus and his saving message the very purpose of your life. That's my hope today. I hope you walk out with that understanding, why it's so important we make Jesus at the center. And I firmly believe we're going to see people's lives change right in front of us today. I really do. Every chair has been prayed over. Every camera has been prayed over for those online. And that's both the chairs in here on Main Street and uh, the Bethel Chapel. Why? Because I want God to do what he wants to do in our lives today. Anybody else want that today? I hope that's why we're here. We want God to have his way in our lives today. And so that's what we're shooting for. And my hope is, is, number one, you commit yourself to Jesus maybe for the first time or you commit yourself to Jesus in a way that you never have before. That's always the opportunity the Lord gives us. He gives us this wonderful invitation. And I really do believe we're going to see lives change today. So who's ready for that? Me too. All right, so we've got your Bibles. Hey, I hope you do. If you're new to Connection Point and we say that, I just want to give at least a weekly reminder of we want you in God's Word, not just today, but every day. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, New Testament book of Mark today, chapter 1. Taking a look at verses 14 and 15. So Mark chapter 1, verse 14 is where we're headed. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 today. The header on my Bible is it says, Jesus begins his ministry. If you want to know what the ministry of Jesus was, here's a great summary. We're about to read it. So Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want you to repeat this with me this day. You're going to hear this a lot today. So I want you to repeat it with me today. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the message of Jesus, and that's what we're going to preach today. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. I shared last September that if we were to summarize the message and ministry of Jesus with just one word or phrase, the phrase that we would use is the kingdom of God. Some might want to use the word love, or maybe grace, or salvation, or freedom. But as you read the New Testament, the phrase that best summarizes the message in the ministry of Jesus, it is the kingdom of God. For us to understand Jesus and why he came, we must understand the kingdom of God. For us to understand who we are, we must understand the kingdom of God.
For us to understand world history, we must understand the kingdom of God. For us to understand abortion, racism, justice, marriage, singleness, sexual identity, and politics, we must understand the kingdom of God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth start to start something, to, to kick something off, and it's all tied to the kingdom of God. Our life and the lives of everyone around us, it's all tied to this unfolding understanding that God's kingdom has come, it is coming, and it will come. And so this year-long series we've been in, what I wanted to do as we wrap it up today is go back to where we started and review what it is that Jesus came to preach. And what we find is that Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he came to do. He came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So our passage this morning tells us that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he did. The summary of that message, it tells us, so the gospel of God is these very four uh, important things. Four important things. Number one, the time has come. Number two, the kingdom of God is at hand. The third thing, repent. And the fourth is believe in the gospel. That's the message of Jesus. It's a summary of it. And I so desperately want us to understand it today because this is what Jesus was all about. The whole series has been Jesus and. So if we understand this, we understand everything. And I mean everything. He came into synagogues preaching this one simple, profound, and power-packed message. Everything then and everything now has to do with the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand. Whenever the gospel writers, so the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they summarize the ministry of Jesus, they do so by saying he came proclaiming the kingdom. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 10. Jesus sends out the 12. So now Jesus came preaching this message, but he also gives his disciples instructions to do the same. Here's what it says. Jesus talking to the disciples and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. That's the message and ministry of Jesus. We find the same or a similar summary in Luke chapter 10. So in the first segment, he sends out like 72. In this one, he just sends out the 12 and he tells them again, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So this message is the message of Jesus. And so it's very important as his followers, we also preach the same message, right? That we live the same message. And so that's what I want to do this morning is, is unpack those four parts. Because as we understand those four things, we live in the message and we can preach the message and our world is changed and Jesus can come back again and set everything right. That's what we're living for. That's the goal. So what is the kingdom then? What is this time that has come? How do we repent and believe? What is the gospel? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave that hanging out there for us. It's, he doesn't want that to be a mystery. He wants it to be really clear for us. And so he shows us what it is. So the first thing is, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
So what does that mean that the time is fulfilled? As you look at the narrative of God's word, as you look at the storyline of the Bible, so if you read through this from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, what you find is there, there has been promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. That's the word of God. We know we can believe the promises because so many things have already been fulfilled. So whatever promises remain, we know that fulfillment's gonna come. We don't have to doubt that. The kingdom of God, it belongs to a time that's being fulfilled. And how do we see this played out in the Old Testament? Because it starts there. Well, we see this promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this promise culminates in the Old Testament in the life of a man named David. David ruled during the time of Israel's greatest glory. He was a person truly given to God despite his sins. And after David, his son Solomon rules. But then there comes a decline for the nation of Israel. And so there eventually comes this hope of restoration, of a, of a David-like rule in the land. Because as things go south, they're hoping for David or someone like David to return again. The future for Israel became a hope that God would do the David thing again in their midst. That's what they wanted. This hope became tied to the phrase, the day of the Lord. If you read the Old Testament, you'll hear the day of the Lord. And it was actually a day of judgment upon Israel's enemies and upon Israel itself. We kind of forget that sometimes. Because God's people were refusing to act like God's people. That's always a problem. Be that in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or right now. If we're God's people, God expects we're going to act like God's people. That's really what this whole series has been about. What does it look like to act like God's people? And so if you've missed any of those, go back and listen. We want to live like God's people. And so the day of the Lord is what they're waiting for. We know for Israel, what had they missed out on? Instead of taking care of the poor living among them, they oppressed the poor, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. Basically, God had said, it is my intention to take care of the marginalized, Israel, just as I have taken care of you as a marginalized people, so I expect you to take care of others. What God has done for us, he always expects that we're going to do for others. But Israel wasn't very good at this. And so the Lord was going to come somehow and set things straight regarding Israel's enemies and regarding Israel itself. As you read through the Old Testament, you find the predominant theme throughout the prophets was actually one of judgment. On the day of the Lord, God's reign of righteousness and justice was going to finally take place. So that's what they're waiting for. After the rule of David and Solomon, what happens is, is there's this decline for the nation of Israel. We find then justice actually comes in the Babylonian exile. And upon return to the land, so Israel not living up to God's standard becomes exiles in another land. So God has judged them. He's trying to purge things from their life that causes them to not live for him well. And then they are allowed to go back into the land some 50 to 70 years later. And a great number of people began to recognize in that exile, they had faced the judgment of God. But now they were experiencing his salvation as they returned to the land. And that's how it works on this side of eternity. This is so important today we understand this, that we face judgment and then we get salvation. Praise the Lord for that. God judges us in order to save us this side of eternity. So we shouldn't be concerned or fearful of the judgment of the Lord because it leads to salvation. I'm gonna come back to that a little later. 
Israel was judged, carted off to Babylon, and then Israel was saved and is now returning to the land. But the experience of coming back into the land, it became a disappointment because not everybody returned, and so despair sets in. And and several hundred years later now, Israel had become a pawn in between strong nation states. One great world power after another invaded and then controlled Israel. First it was Greece, and then Syria, and eventually Rome. And so Old Testament prophets had told the people of a restored future that God would act on their behalf. At some point, God's going to deliver them. But people eventually gave up on that idea that God would do anything within history. And so then they faced 400 years of silence. But then you fast forward to the first century, to the time of Jesus, and now people are looking for God to come in from outside history and bring all things to conclusion to start a new age. That's what they're waiting for now. There was this understanding that people were living in this age, an evil age where where everything basically is a mess, that there's sickness and, and demon possession. And so people were waiting for the age to come when God would come in and set everything straight. That was the day of the Lord. That's what they're waiting on because they understood the age they were living in was Satan's age. But the age to come would break in in a dramatic way where God would rule. They wanted God's rule. And this is where we get the language, the kingdom of God. That's where that phrase comes from. People were waiting for Satan's age to be taken over by God's rule. Wouldn't that be a good thing? The time of God's rule. So within the fervor of people waiting for the day of the Lord, a day of judgment and salvation, there appeared a man in the wilderness, a man who has a baby left in his mother's womb when he sensed the Messiah was nearby, a man wearing clothes of camel's hair and who ate interesting food, a man named John the baptizer. And he's telling people, we're at the brink. We stand right here on the line between this age and the age to come. It's about to happen. God's rule is about to overtake us. That's what John is preaching in the wilderness. So if you think about the context, people have been waiting for the day of the Lord, his judgment and salvation. Why do you think people were responding? They're like, that day's now? I should do something about that, right? And so should we all, right? Because the day of the Lord has come and it is coming. We're in in-between right now. And so then it's in this context, Jesus of Nazareth, he comes down to where John is baptizing people. And Jesus gets baptized himself. And in so doing, he identifies with the John movement, a movement of repentance and baptism, of moving from judgment to salvation. This is what Jesus identifies with, and it's in that great event of submitting to John's baptism, Jesus faces this climactic event in his life. Heaven is ripped open, scripture says. The Holy Spirit descends on him, and a voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately following this event, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, and he comes out full of the Holy Spirit, preaching in synagogues all throughout the Galilee and announcing this good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he came to proclaim. 
And so now the hopes and expectations of God's people, they're being realized in the life and ministry of Jesus. And Jesus came preaching, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's his message. So the time has come. It came in Jesus. And the time is coming where he will come again. But then what does it mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? It means the day of the Lord has come. And the day of the Lord is coming. It means the day of the Lord, it arrived in Jesus. Judgment and salvation. But it will be consummated on his second return. And so the key to understanding life is to look at it through the right framework. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus, and it's going to be consummated now at his second coming. God's rule has already begun in this world. God's rule is here, and we should be thankful for that today. No matter what happens in the world in which we live, God is still on the throne. That's why we never need to worry. That's why Jesus over and over says, do not fear, because he's sitting on his throne. God's rule has begun. Jesus Christ has already dealt Satan an ultimate blow in the great holy war at the cross and resurrection. He dealt him that blow. Satan knows his days are numbers and he's on the retreat. And the church now advances on enemy territory and the enemy's gates will not be able to withstand God's ever advancing kingdom because Jesus will build his church. That's what he's talking about when Jesus is preaching. But at the same time, in Satan's retreat, this age still exists in some part. And in this retreat, Satan is trying to wreak havoc upon the earth. We see it every day. Scripture says he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking people to devour. So while we're actively anticipating Christ's second return, people are still going to die. Battles are still going to occur. So I want to be clear today, there has never been a promise we're not going to face or fight battles, or that we're not going to die. There's simply a promise that we will win. We will win. That's the promise, no matter what happens, because God has already done the winning. That's the promise we have. We're simply a part of the mop-up operation now. That's what we're a part of. And that may cost us our lives. But so what? When did that become important? because we're safe in Jesus, right? We're promised eternity with him because we can be confident sin, death, and the devil will be be fully defeated, not a trace of them anymore. Complete victory will be achieved. The only question is when. That's the only question. The coming of the kingdom of God started with the coming of Jesus and the work he began while he completed it, it will be completed upon his return. He started it, he'll finish it. We're in the in-between. But I also want to say, his coming again, in case you're unaware, it could happen at any time. Any time. And I want to say this, I remember growing up in the church as a kid, almost being scared of that day. But I also felt like it could happen any time, which in some ways it was good. It kept you living right, right? Anybody else grow up in the church that way? Like, Jesus is going to show up any time. But at the same time, the older I got, almost the less of the impression I felt like, man, there's still a lot of work to be done. I don't know that Jesus could come tomorrow, but if there's anything the last year has showed us, the world can be touched in a moment. Every corner of the globe touched by one thing, right? Touched by COVID could be touched by Christ. So in in months time, the world could be reached, Jesus comes again. 
So if there was ever a time we anticipate the coming of the Lord, it's now. Technology has us more connected than we've ever been. More people making decisions for Christ today than ever in history. Why? Because the spirit of God's being poured out. Hardship might be happening, but Christ is coming. And the question is, are we ready for that? The kingdom of God is at hand. But I want to be, I wanted to clear up a little bit of a, a misunderstanding regarding the term kingdom, because oftentimes we think of kingdom as a place or a realm. Like England is a kingdom. It's a, it's a place. Uh, my brother and his family, they live in London, a physical location. But the kingdom of God does not belong to the category of space, but instead time. It has to do with rule and reign, not necessarily realm. This is why a couple of weeks ago I stated that America is not the kingdom of God. Because I know sometimes we have that misunderstanding. American Christians, whether consciously or unconsciously, we can kind of think it is. But America is simply America. Kenya is Kenya. France is France. But the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God supersedes all national boundaries. The kingdom of God is a time when God rules. It's important we understand that. The kingdom of God is a time when God steps onto the scene and he ushers in his rule and reign. I want us to think about when we're praying with people up here at the altar and somebody comes up and they need a healing, the kingdom of God can come in that moment and bring healing. Why? Because God's rule and reign is now in that body. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about in terms of God's kingdom has come, it is coming, and it will come. And Jesus speaks of the kingdom in two important ways. It is both a future event and a present reality. We find in Luke chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answers them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Kingdom of God is in the midst of us. Do we consider that when we come on a Sunday? The kingdom arrived in the ministry of Jesus because he was in their midst. But you might ask, well, how can something be both present and future at the same time? The answer lies in the person of the king. Where the king is, there his kingdom is. Where the king is exercising his sovereign authority, there the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God arrived in a certain time and in a certain place, which means we enter the kingdom by becoming a follower of Jesus and we live in the kingdom by obeying the king's will. The king and the kingdom has come. Have you received him? If not, my prayer is you do that today because the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's so important we repent and believe in the gospel. So what is repentance? What does that mean? What is that word? It is the act of receiving Jesus as Savior and King. That's what repentance is. Repentance describes what takes place when we enter the kingdom. Jesus is the entry point. Repentance is the action. Repentance is like becoming a child again. Becoming totally dependent on God. Jesus describes the act of repentance in Mark chapter 8. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. Repentance is a denial of self. It is the overthrow of Satan's rule. That's what repentance does. In case you did not know, if you're not under God's rule, you're under Satan's influence. So what do you want? 
God's rule, Satan's influence. That should be an easy choice, right? We have this curious verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, where Jesus is speaking. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. So to repent is to violently overthrow the rule of Satan in your life. All other kingdoms must give in to God's rule. All of them. All other allegiances must be done away with. Yet we have this self-interest to secure our own self-existence in some way. We secure our lives by only putting a certain kind of people around us. We secure our lives through financial planning. We secure our lives through career advancement. We put all these different things in place to secure our self-existence in some way. And Jesus says, the person who's trying to secure their self-existence is actually in the process of losing it. The person trying to save their life is failing in their efforts. The only one who's going to find their life is the one who loses it. The person who's going to find their life is the person who repents and who's going to find their life by repenting and giving up the urgency and the attempt of securing their lives before God. We try to go our own way and figure it out ourselves, but that's not the God way. And it's not that we go about losing our lives in search of another one. That's actually not the point. No, we lose our lives by giving up our attempts to control everything. And then we wake up one day and we say, there it is. I found it. I found it. We wake up one day, we realize we can truly trust Jesus with everything. Everything. We give up on our own attempts. But I think this is what it comes down to. Ultimately, we have a very difficult time trusting God with our lives. I think part of that is because deep down, we know we can't really be trusted. And so then we push that over onto God and say, I'm not sure if he can be trusted either. And so then what's our response? We must repent. See God's forgiveness for trying to go our own way, secure our own lives, and instead trust him. Why is it? that God's kingdom demands repentance. Why, why is that the case? It all goes back to the garden, Genesis. What God intended was a universe where one perfect will existed. We call that God's will. Where all other created beings lived in perfect relationship with him and each other. That was how we started. This is why we pray God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus encourages us to seek after. And I want to say we cannot imagine a better world than that. Where every created being is doing God's will, like it's being done in heaven. You want justice? That's what it looks like. Everyone doing God's will, loving God, loving others. It gets done. It gets done. Why is the whole world so divisive right now? Because instead of God's will uniting all of creation Each person's individual will demands them to be at the center, which causes devastation everywhere. That's the problem. This is the root of racism, abortion, murder, nationalism, theft, and a whole host of other evil things. That's the root of it. All sin is tied back to this. Everything you find in scripture is linked to this. This desire of putting ourselves at the center, our own self-rule and self-reign, where my will's done in heaven, like I have forced it to be done on earth. That's really what we wind up doing. But when God's rule comes in, what he is doing is he's trying to undo the garden in us. He's trying to get us to pray the disciples' prayer. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's what we start praying. 
There has to come a moment in our lives when we experience repentance where we seek God's will over our own. There has to come this moment. And I have to believe part of what's happened in the last year and a half is God trying to lead people to that place to say, you can't do it. You can't lead your own life well, but I can. Turn to me, is what he says. It's a kind of repentance that denies self at the center. Where we're okay to take up a cross and lose our lives. Where daily repentance is a healthy and good thing. Why would we do this? So that we might actually find our lives. We could find them. But here's what I found if we put the emphasis on the loss side of things, then it feels like we're losing something. When Jesus says, he who finds his life must first lose it. And so we then think, well, I'm going to lose something. That's really not the case. You want to know what you lose? The influence of Satan in your life. I don't know about you, but we want to lose that, right? Let's lose that and gain Jesus. We gain Jesus. We gain everything. This is what Jesus talks about in two parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man finds, he covers it up. And then in his joy, I want to say his joy. It's not a joy of I've, I've lost everything that I gave up. No, I'm gaining this treasure. So that's what it is. And he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is what Jesus is referring to. When we gain the kingdom, we gain everything. Everything. The emphasis in repentance, it can be on losing because we lose Satan's influence, but it also needs to be on the finding where we wake up one day and we realize God has found our lives for us because I can't find it on my own. He instead has secured it and we don't have to secure our own little lives anymore because God did it. He's done it in a way that we could never hope to and that's where real freedom is found. And this is the good news of the kingdom. That freedom can be found by giving up our self-rule, which is influenced by Satan, and instead accept the free gift of God's rule, where he secures our life and sets us free. That's the gospel. It's so important we understand that God's rule is our security. God's rule is our security. We can't secure our own lives. Only God can do that. I think about how many of us here today have tried to secure our own self-existence with the right friends, the right job, with checking accounts and material possessions, and in so doing, we've ultimately rejected God. If you want to find a problem in America, it's this. Because we can do a lot to secure our own lives, right? We really can. But in so doing, we're rejecting God's rule in our life. And so then, thankfully, what God does is he comes in, he judges us and brings us back to a place of salvation, a place of complete dependence on him. Because repentance is about responding to God's judgment on this side of eternity. That's what repentance is. That's why this message is Jesus, judgment, and persecution. The Lord is continually judging our lives, warring against those things in our lives that keep us from him, saving us from ourselves. I don't think we're thankful for God's wrath sometimes, but can I say we should be? Because he wars against those things in our life that keep us from him. We should want that. And this is the difference. We think judgment, Jesus thinks salvation. God comes against those things in our lives that cause us harm, what we call sin, and the action is judgment, but this is what brings salvation into our lives. Something we should always be thankful for. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing judgment and salvation. 
We need to have that kind of heart posture. But the question is, are we responding to God's judgment in our lives? Because judgment usually comes in the form of Holy Spirit conviction. He points out things in our lives that are keeping us from full fellowship with God. And it's then our job to respond to that prompting and return to living obediently for the king. Every day we should have that kind of response. You want to know who a Christian is? A Christian is a person who really wants to become one. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who just really wants to become one because they just are hungry for it. And so then they walk with Jesus different. When we make this decision to follow Jesus, it's not that divine perfection sets in, it's that divine infection starts to spread. That's what really happens. We as children of God are becoming who we already are. Discipleship is all about becoming who God made us to be. A Christian who's walking closely with Jesus is a person who regularly repents because the closer we walk with God, the more we realize the depth of our need. And so then repentance is joy as God moves us closer and closer into what we're to become. So we should never be afraid or ashamed of repentance. Can I speak that over us this morning? We should never be afraid or ashamed of repentance. That's a really good thing. It is a joyful humiliation as God makes us who we are. It should be joyful. Why? Because the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so we can repent and believe in the gospel. But for us to believe in the gospel, we have to learn how to live the future in the present time. That's why we're going to look crazy to others because our values are not based on this evil age. Our values have to do with the age to come where God's perfect rule exists. And those values do not align with this age. And we spent the last year looking at all of these topics as they relate to the kingdom of God, views regarding men and women, marriage and singleness, sexuality and politics, racism and poverty, refugees and abortion. As followers of Jesus, our values must align with God's kingdom because his kingdom is eternal. So we're living the future in the present. And as our values align with our kings, we should expect to be treated in this world like our king was treated in this world. Jesus taught this in his famous message, the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we find in scripture, anyone who has ever lived a life fully devoted to God. You look at Jesus, the Old Testament prophets, they faced trouble in this world. They were suffered, they were persecuted. So we shouldn't be surprised when this is the result of our living in the kingdom of God. Persecution is the price for living the kingdom way. Jesus, before going to the cross, he shares with his closest followers. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. So we should be careful if the world loves us, right? Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the world that I said, the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So in short, persecution is our promise as kingdom citizens. 
But the interesting thing is, it's also our receipt. It's our receipt. It is our proof that we're living in the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for a cause. That's not what he says. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Practicing righteousness, loving God, loving our neighbors is all about living like Jesus. So as we live like Jesus, not just support a cause, we can expect persecution for being like him, which could make us wonder if we're not facing persecution, then maybe we're not living like Jesus very well. It's a good question to ask, a good litmus test of how well we're living and looking like Jesus. But it could also be that persecution just hasn't come yet. Blessed are those who are persecuted. It's actually written in the future tense. So persecution may not be happening right now, but as an older seasoned saint once told me, just wait, it will come. (laughs) Not very encouraging words, right? Just keep living like Jesus. Don't worry about it. But I want to be clear. We don't go looking for persecution. We shouldn't be offensive or do things that call for needless strife. But what scripture would say is simply living like Jesus, that by itself eventually causes persecution to come. And the goal of persecution, I don't know if you've considered this, the goal of Satan and influencing others to treat followers of Jesus poorly, it is actually not to beat, torture, or kill believers. That's not the goal. That's not the goal. I think that's what we usually think of when we think of persecution, right? We think somebody's going to beat you up or, or maybe even kill you. We think about those kinds of persecuted acts. But that's really not the goal. The goal of Satan and his persecutors is to silence believers. That's the goal, to make believers lose or give up their voice or diminish their witness. That's the goal of persecution. The most successful persecution happens when an immediate family member, a boss, a spouse, or someone else just generally pressures us to remain quiet, to keep faith personal. So you might not be getting beat up for following Jesus or half your life threatened but it's likely you are somehow being silenced about your saving relationship with Jesus, right? So we can't think persecution doesn't exist here. It does, it just looks different. It looks different. But this also might be why we're not facing persecution, because if we're already silent, if we're already not sharing the good news of Jesus in word and action, there's really nothing to persecute or silence, right? When Shelly and I interacted with believers in the Middle East who had faced severe persecution, being rejected by their families, thrown into prison, beaten up, they actually encouraged us, tell people to rejoice. This is what Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Why? That was my question. Why would you say rejoice? Because these overt acts of persecution reveal the absolute failure of persecutors to silence believers or diminish their faith. If believers are being persecuted, that means we're sharing and their persecution isn't working. That's how they said that we should rejoice. Overt persecution is a sign that believers have refused to be quiet. And what does scripture promise these believers? Salvation and eternal life in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's the promise. The interesting thing about us in our our Christian setting is many have been taught to Pray for persecution to end or for all suffering to cease. But the problem is, the number one cause of persecution is people giving their lives to Jesus, right? 
I'm going to say that again. Help us think about this this morning. The number one cause of persecution is people giving their lives to Jesus. So do we want that to cease? Lord, no, because we want God's rule to be established and end Satan's influence. Persecution happens because people say yes to Jesus. So the only possible way for persecution to end is for people to stop accepting Jesus. Well, that's not helpful because our promise is eternity with him as we serve him. So we don't want to diminish the witness of Jesus. So we need to be okay with the fact that persecution is simply part of the task right now in the mop-up operation. So then the question is, what are we to do? How do we face persecution knowing it's part of kingdom living? Well, Peter, one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus, here's what he says. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. So Jesus, when treated poorly because his values did not align with the world's, he didn't retaliate. Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, and, and actually reward those who persecute us by praying for them. So we pray for those who persecute us because we realize that their lives are so dominated by evil, this is why they behave in that manner. So we should pray for them. That's why. There's another reason we pray for those who persecute us. I, I shared in our message on Jesus and racism, there's something about loving our enemies and blessing those who persecute us that breaks the power of evil in this world. It just does. And the incredible thing is, is we maintain a spirit of joy in the midst of persecution when we do what's right, even if it's hard. We're blessed by God. The promise is we're glorified with Jesus. Paul, a devoted follower of Jesus, he writes, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. If we suffer because of our following of Jesus, we're glorified with him, the promises. Peter puts it this way, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ and his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. So when we suffer, the very glory of God rests on us. Something we should desire. That's why suffering is one of the most powerful weapons in spiritual warfare. This is why Jesus wants us to love our enemies because he knows it will advance the kingdom of God like nothing else can. We'll not advance our lives or God's kingdom through power and triumph, but sacrifice and love. It's the way of our king. I shared in several messages God has always advanced his kingdom through the enduring love of his suffering saints. That's what he's always done. God advances his kingdom through the enduring love of his suffering saints. That's a kingdom way. So then the question that I want to wrap up this point with is, is how do we endure? Let's get some practical things. How do we endure? How do we face persecution? We do what we talked about earlier in the series. Number one, we spend time with Jesus. It all starts there. We got to spend time with Jesus. We read scripture, sing songs, and we pray. 
Secondly, we stay fully engaged in church. We stay in close fellowship with other believers. Why? Because the way we get through a crisis is together. Third, we engage in spiritual disciplines. We fast, we serve others, and we rest. Spiritual disciplines have a way of keeping God at the center and our lives on track. And lastly, we rejoice. We rejoice. It's counterintuitive, but that's what scripture tells us. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Peter says, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing suffering produces endurance, and endurance character and character hope. And James, the brother of Jesus, says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So as we live like Jesus, persecution, which has the goal of silencing our witness, will come our way. And we will not only endure it, but actually embrace it by spending time with Jesus, staying in close fellowship with other believers, engaging in spiritual disciplines, and rejoicing. That's what we're called to. So we need to understand this morning, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Will we repent and believe in the gospel? That's our response. Music team's going to come back and we're going to close in song this morning. And what I have found is the reason that so many have difficulty entering into and living fully in the kingdom of God is because we're living in the in-between, the already but not yet. We face troubles in this world and mistakenly we think we can solve them on our own only to eventually realize we cannot. We think we can secure our own lives, but only God can do that. So we're in this in-between time. And so it's vital we remember the words of Jesus who says, here on earth, you'll have trials and sorrows, but that's not the good news. The good news is, take heart. Jesus overcame the world. And so we can rejoice and live in that. If we hope to successfully navigate this life that we're in and be granted life forever with God, we've got to turn to the only one who can set us free from this evil age. And this act of turning to Jesus is called repentance. When we repent, we admit we don't have the capacity to rule ourselves. If you're thinking this morning, you're doing a good job running your life. Jesus wants to say you're not. He wants to rule our lives. And so we repent and say, Jesus, you can do it. You can do it. So as we close today, I want to invite you to pick up in your seat backs, or maybe it was on your seat this morning. There's these bookmarks. We're wrapping up the series today. And in it, it says, I commit to God and his church that I will make Jesus and his saving message the purpose of my life. This is between you and God this morning. Can you make that commitment? Can you make that commitment to make Jesus and his saving message the purpose of your life? That's God's intent. Will you lose your life so you can find it? Our kingdom creed to summarize this series is that Jesus Christ, our King, He is our Lord, Savior, and role model. We can live like him. The church is an assembly of people. We are called out for a purpose. God's word is our guide. Are you rooted in God's word? Missions is our mandate. Holy Spirit, baptism is our power. You can't do it on your own. Jesus gives you the strength. Prayer, fasting, love, truth, and suffering. These are our weapons of our warfare to advance the kingdom of God. God's presence is our promise. That's part of what we gather like we do on a Sunday morning. His presence is our promise. It sustains us. The return of Jesus is our blessed hope for righteous justice. We labor for the day that Jesus comes again. Have you committed to that? In eternity with God and other believers, this is our reward. So folks, this world is not all we have. 
We're here for so much more. Thank God this world is not all we have. We are promised so much better. Jesus, in talking with his followers about the last days, he declared, all will hear, the end will come. How quickly do we think Jesus could come if we would truly commit ourselves to sharing the message of Jesus? How quickly could Jesus return if we would forego the securing of our small lives and instead trust Jesus to do that securing for us? If we really want to see the world fixed, we labor for the day that Jesus comes again. He's the only one that can do it. So I encourage you, put those bookmarks in your Bible. May they be a reminder for you that we have a king. We live in a kingdom. God's word is our guide and we have a mission to fulfill. And we get to fulfill it together. I'm going to invite you to stand as the music team comes forward and they're going to lead us in song. Shelly's going to come and, and invite us this morning. If I could have our prayer team members, if you guys wouldn't mind to come back to the front this morning to be ready to pray with those who make a decision to follow Jesus. We want to be equipped for that this morning. And Shelly, would you come and just close us out today? I got all that covered, right? That would be really, really dangerous, I think. But I hope that you understand this is a time where we have come together. We have been able to hear and receive truth. And that truth should allow us to then process how can we draw near to the Lord and he'll draw near to us. And like for Zach and I, we cannot tell you what God wants to do in your life. We just know he wants to do something. We can't tell you. It's as diverse as every heart in this room. And so we just want to say, here's this space. Here's this space to pray, to listen. And the Lord can give you a thought or an idea. And sometimes it's just a feeling inside your chest that you need to respond. You need to wait. And so that's what I want us to do right now, is to just quiet ourselves before the Lord and just say, Lord, how can I respond to you? What does the repentance look like right now? And as the Lord gives you an idea, then just begin to repent. And not in a shaming way. The enemy wants you to feel shame and condemnation, not the Lord. The Lord is the perfect Father who opens His arms. He receives us. And I think the enemy wants to come in and what? Kill, steal, and destroy. And so if what you feel is shame, that's not right. God created you. He designed you. He loves you like only a perfect father can. And he wants to draw you to himself. And the only way we can come to him is to repent. Does that make sense? This isn't a shaming thing. It's the right path. So right now, let's all close our eyes and just get into a place of just quiet listening, quiet contemplation.
begin to just ask the Lord, how can I repent? What does that look like, God? Because we don't want anything on our part to separate us from God. He never separates himself from us. We do that all on our own. So right here in this space, let's find a way to do that. The altars are open. You can come forward. You can make your seat a place of prayer. But I encourage all of us, find a place to pray and respond. Jim, I'm going to allow you to just lead as you feel the Spirit leads.